This morning, uh, I get to do one of my favorite things in the world is, is start a new teaching series. This is by far one of my favorite things I get to do as one of your pastors is, is open a book together uh, and kind of launch into an introduction for where our church is going to be for the next season. And so we are starting today in on the book of 1 Corinthians together. And so how we kind of approach teaching at Anthem is there are times and where we'll take breaks and gaps where we kind of lean into uh, something that is maybe topical or something that our church needs to hone in on. But by and large, we just like tackle books of the Bible and let them take us where it goes. And so 1 Corinthians is, is going to be one of those books that takes us through the entire year. So if you like to have your year mapped out, we'll be wrapping this up around Christmas time. And so uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians probably covers some of the most controversial topics that you and I can think of uh, today. Anything around divisions and disunity in the church, to sex and sexual purity, to culture and food, to how we handle worship gatherings here today, and then the resurrection itself. It is true chocked full of things that will probably make you and I uncomfortable throughout. But one of the things that is really important to us as a church is that we elevate this really high and kind of put our own uh, opinions and agendas and preferences under that and really seek to know who God is by reading his word and seek to know how he calls us to live in life based on what is in the text. And so that is the journey we're taking together. Uh, we're introducing this book today. I'm going to lay out some context and some background and some introductions here, but where we're going to be headed into a church is going to be some formative areas instructing us in how we live together. Because what ultimately Paul is doing in this book is he's writing to these new Christians in the city of Corinth, which is in the Roman Empire, and he's writing to them about how every one of life's most complex questions can be seen through the lens of the gospel. So everything, no matter what, like everything, how to raise your kids, how to show up at church, how to do life in community, like how we engage with culture, right? how we date on Tinder, everything. Everything can be seen through the lens of the gospel, Paul says, every single one of life's issues. And Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians right, that the gospel is above everything else, that what we believe about Jesus, what he has done for us, who we are in light of that should be the primary lens in which we see the entire world. Now, before we dive in too far, I want to give a little bit of a why we are here. We didn't just pull 1 Corinthians out of a hat and decide this is a great way to go. There's actually a little bit of like why and prayer and thought and planning that goes into a new teaching series. And one of the reasons uh, that is kind of the why behind this book, um, well, one, one commentator that we were reading uh, talks about how Paul, the writer of this letter, wrote to the Thessalonians to be more friendly to the world, right? They were a little too walled off, a little too gated back in their like holy huddle Christian culture. And he said they need to engage more with culture. And on the opposite end of things, Paul writes to the Corinthians that they are way too friendly with the world and its ways and its customs. And so he writes to them and how to be more distinct from those who don't know and follow Jesus, in other words, there's a level of engagement with the world that is expected as a Christian, a level of engagement in the world that is expected. Um, but believers can easily fall into excess in those areas of being too culturally relevant, of being too immersed in the things of this world. So you can become consumed 
by the things of this world as a follower of Jesus, or you can become too distant. And so what Paul is doing is he is writing to a whole bunch of new Christians who are primarily too consumed with the world. They're bringing all this stuff, whether it's like the temple pagan worship, whether it's the sexual ethic of their day or the food practices of their day, they're taking that all into the church and it's wreaking havoc. And so Paul's writing to help them uh, correct some of that. So Paul's going to spend a lot of time dealing with the various struggles that they are bringing into the church, things like divisions and disunity in the church, specifically based on people following their favorite teacher, their favorite preacher, right? I like the way that guy teaches. I like the way that guy teaches. That guy's funnier. That guy's a little bit more hip. So I'm going to follow him, and it's creating disunity in the church. Paul's going to talk about a Christian sexual ethic, how we see marriage, divorce, singleness, uh, LGBTQ issues all through the lens of the gospel. He's going to talk about how we engage in culture, how we engage in this right here, the worship gathering as we come together, knowing that we are all gifted and wired for certain ways, and we all have a voice in certain ways, but things were getting out of hand in the church in Corinth. And the way he kind of structures this book is it, it is a letter. It's not a book. Sorry, I shouldn't even say a book. It's not a book. It's not a solitary piece of literature. It's a letter writing back to a church he planted. And so this is like me writing a letter back to you guys maybe uh, 10 years down the road or something. And I'm hearing reports of things that are going on. And I'm trying to remind you of those foundations that I once laid. This is what's happening with Paul. And it's kind of broken up into these kind of five primary like essays, if you will, or five primary primary topics. And so even in our journey through 1 Corinthians over the next year, there's going to be some like mini arcs or mini stories throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to start in on one of them next week. But today what I want to do is just dig on this overarching principle of the gospel in all of life and what Paul is trying to accomplish with these people. So Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Sorry, that was a really long-winded intro to get to where we are going. But open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. Uh, the text will be behind me on the screen, but you can use your app or your physical Bibles. Or I don't hear a lot of page flipping. Am I? No, all right, just me. All right, I'm flipping my page. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul. Okay, stop there. Do we, do we know who Paul is? It's a, I know, this is like a mixed bag in this room with like church uh, experience or a different kind of... Uh, patterns of reading the Bible or whatever. Uh, do we know who Paul is? I, we can't take Paul for granted as we dig into this new letter because a lot of who he is leaks into how he's going to instruct this church. And so Paul, or otherwise known as Saul, depending on where you're reading in scripture, comes on the scene pretty early in the early church. And so if you have your Bible, actually flip to the left just a little bit over to Acts chapter 7. This is where Saul, Paul, first comes on the scene with the first Christian martyr. So to set the stage on what's been happening in Acts so far, right? Jesus ascends, commissions his disciples. They kind of huddle up. They receive the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches. Thousands are saved. And we have this new baby church with thousands of people all in Jerusalem. And we find out that uh, it's getting too much for the 12 apostles to handle. And so they divvy out some work to some other people. And we see people are starting to spread the good news. And it's disrupting the city and the culture. And particularly, it's disrupting the Jewish establishment at this time. So Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, these things were the 
epic sermon that Stephen preached right from the Old Testament that Jesus is who he says he is and we should follow him. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Who is the they there, by the way? Who's that? Yeah, Pharisees, kind of the Jewish community at large, absolutely. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. First mention he has here. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution in the church and in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The church scatters, and we have this picture of a guy who is after every person who would follow Jesus, dragging them off, putting them in prison. Flip over to Acts chapter 9, one page to the right. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so what Paul, or what Saul's doing here, Saul is a certified Christian killer. He is on the hunt for anyone who would follow the way of Jesus, and as he's on his way to Damascus, he asks for a letter so he can continue doing what he's been doing in a new city, rooting out, murdering, putting in prison anyone who would follow Jesus. And look how the Lord works. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul has this radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And if anything was going to stop Saul from what he was doing, it was a radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And he gives him this mission. If you skip down just a little bit to verse 15, he gives a vision to this guy, Ananias. And he says, tell this to Saul. The Lord said to him, go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He is sent. His mission is to carry his name to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And immediately, Saul starts preaching and teaching about Jesus. He has this radical transformation that changed every part of him. Skip down a little bit to verse 19. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Think about the 180 that just happened. Guy who is getting letters from the Jewish high priest so that he could go murder and put in prison Christians in a different city. What he was already doing in Jerusalem, now in Damascus, a total and complete 180, immediately preaching Jesus in the synagogues. And all who heard from him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in the basket. And verse 26, and when he come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So he was in Damascus. He's now back down into Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. The last time in Jerusalem, what was happening? The last time Saul was in Jerusalem, he was killing, murdering, stoning, and putting in prison disciples of Jesus. They were rightly afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. All right, so we have another guy on the scene, Barnabas, who enters the story to vouch for Saul. And they become kind of ministry partners in mission here. The disciples are terrified. We have this guy, Barnabas, saying, no, it's okay. He has seen the resurrected Jesus. Let me tell you about everything that's been happening in Damascus. And the story kind of goes on here. We get the focus and the acts on, on Peter and a few other people. And then down in chapter 11, so flip over a couple pages to chapter 11, verse 25. So Saul goes to Tarsus. He was causing all this like disruption in the church, and people were like, we have to get him out of here. So they sent him off to Tarsus. And in verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. First time that word is used in the Bible. So he's in Antioch for a year with Barnabas, teaching, preaching, seeing people get saved, and hope strengthening this new church here. And after some time in Antioch, he goes back to Jerusalem, right? He took up money for the Jerusalem famine that was happening. So him and Barnabas carry all that money back to Jerusalem. They come back to Antioch again in chapter 13. Flip over. We're almost done. You guys are doing great. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 9 the Hebrew Saul, his name changes to the, his Roman name, Paul. And then it's back in Antioch, he starts to preach again to the Jews. In verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. 
And then he goes into this long sermon preaching from the Old Testament about how Jesus is the Christ to the Jews. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is a profound moment in the story of Paul and Barnabas. You and I are here because of this moment. Paul says, Behold, I am going to the Gentiles. It's this hearken back to the calling that Jesus has given him when he said, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is why you and I are sitting here today. Because Paul went to the Gentiles. The Jews rejected his message over and over again. He went to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 14 and 15, he's in Iconium, Lystra, Antioch again, and Jerusalem again. And chapters 16 and 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they split with Barnabas, and they're all in jail in Philippi. And then they go to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. And in Acts chapter 18, here we are. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. We've made it, guys. Paul's in Corinth. This has been a long journey to Corinth for Paul. This has been a long, life-transforming journey for Saul, then becoming Paul, who is a totally different person, who has spent the last 20-some-odd years all around the Middle East proclaiming the name of Jesus, bringing money and food to those in need, starting new churches, strengthening churches. And he lands in Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for that, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Still trying to preach this message of Jesus to the Jews. He goes to the Gentiles. 
And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. He didn't go very far. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. There is immediate fruit in Paul's mission here in Corinth. He goes next door and keeps preaching Jesus to Gentiles and anyone who would listen. And many believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or har- to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Amidst all the jailings and stonings and rejection and being run out of different cities, now Paul is in his ministry sweet spot. And Jesus says, this is where I have you. This is what I've called you to. I have many people in this city. Do not be silent. Go on speaking. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. That's a lot. The Jews go after Paul. They keep rejecting him, reviling him, making plans to kill him, run him out of the city. And they finally bring him before this tribunal in Corinth. And the proconsul there, the kind of regional governor, says, this has nothing to do with Roman law. Get out of here. And they try to go after Paul, and instead they go after Sosthenes, a ruler in the synagogue which is kind of at the top of the Jewish hierarchy in any given town, ruler of the synagogue, either along with or succeeding Crispus as a convert to Christianity, right? So at the very top of the Jewish ranks in the synagogue in Corinth are people who are being converted to the way of Jesus. But more importantly, for our purpose today, Sosthenes is named as a co-author of this letter with Paul. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Well done. We've made it as a long journey through Acts. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Sandwiched in between the mention of these two co-authors who are writing this letter back to Corinth, back to Corinth is a really curious phrase for us. Called by the will of God. Have you ever heard someone say that they were called by God to do something? Yeah. And there, I, don't want, I don't want to discredit those people. Often when I hear, like, God's calling me to do this, I'm like, okay, here we go. Wackadoodle time. Or to justify some own, like, sinfulness of their own agenda or something in their life. I get really nervous around the phrase calling because often it is a cop-out for Christians not to do what they ought to do. God's called me to do this. God's called me to to move away. God's called me to leave my wife. God's called me to sleep with my boyfriend. Whatever it is, 
This phrase gets thrown around quite a lot and usually makes me really nervous, especially when people in positions of leadership and authority says, I am called by God to do this. Makes me super nervous. But Paul says he is called by the will of God, not by his own ambition, success, or fame. If we look at the story of Paul, it is anything but a nice, pleasant journey of authority and status and power. He's in jail a lot. He's getting beat a lot. He's being run out of towns. And often Jesus himself reminds Paul why I have you here. I've called you to go to the Gentiles and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's alluding back to his story. In the opening of this letter, he's saying, I am called by God. But to what? To be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, so called by God and to be an apostle. Another word that should make us a little nervous, apostle. Especially if you have any context in the church. That word has been thrown around and misinterpreted and misdefined to give people, for people to give themselves status, power, and authority. They walk into church, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, and suddenly that's a trump card. That's not what's happening here. This word apostle is a confusing one, and it may freak us out a little bit. I want to unpack it just a little bit, because Paul, especially in the first half of this letter, is going to go on defending his apostleship to the church that he helped plant it. So it's helpful if we have some grounding with what this word means. This word apostle is transliterated from the Greek word apostolos, and it just simply means one sent on a mission. That's all it is. One sent on a mission is this word. And there's a couple of primary uses in, in the New Testament around this word apostle. And the first is probably the most obvious to you and I is the 12 apostles, right, that were around Jesus, right? And so these are the 12 apostles, many of whom contributed to the writing of Scripture. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. It's probably the first and most obvious one that you and I can think of. But kind of underneath that, it also gets used to describe a function or office in the church, right? So it's people who function then in apostolic ways. Not, not the 12, not writing Scripture, but we see them in the book of Acts. We see them all over the New Testament. Paul even says to the church in Ephesus that they are grace gifts to the church, that we'd have apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, shepherds, right? We see them in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, in church history, and we believe as a church today that there are people who function apostolically as we see defined in Scripture. So just a few like modern day applications, what that ends up looking like. These people sent on a mission who are functioning in apostolic ways might be a cross-cultural missionary engaging new cultures in fresh and, and relevant ways. We have as a church sent out people to different parts of the world who are laying gospel groundwork where it's not been laid before. So they're having to come, become students of culture, of the language, embed themselves there so that they can bring the gospel to a new culture. Another person who might function apostolically is a church planter, someone who plants a church or many churches, going and laying foundations in new church. We take the literal word there, sent on a mission to plant a church. 
And thirdly, is a leader of a movement or uh, multiple churches or many pastors. And so people who maybe lead denominations or networks or kind of relational grouping of churches can function in this way. And so if you're in the church world at all, think Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movement, John Wimber and the Vineyard movement, Jack Hayford with Foursquare, uh, even guys with Matt Chandler and Acts 29, or even for us, we have leaned into a guy named Chris Vinant who has had apostolic uh, influence in this church and our family of churches as well. Outside input to help lay foundations in new churches. But underneath that, in a bit of a non-technical way, you and I are all sent on mission as well. As followers of Jesus, this is inherent in your role and responsibility as a disciple of Jesus. This word apostolos in the Greek, when it's translated into Latin, it's this word missio, which is where we get the word mission, missionary, being on mission, and it all comes from this idea of being sent for a purpose. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And his famous final commission of his disciples in the book of Matthew says, go, Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Part of Jesus' latter part of his ministry was sending disciples out on the exact same mission that Jesus had. We are all sent. He's talking to disciples To you, to me, reading this 2,000 some odd years later, we are all, to use Paul's words, ambassadors of Jesus Christ to those who do not know Jesus Christ. We are all on mission. Now, like I mentioned earlier, one of those kind of prime issues that Paul is going to get into unpacking is that people had picked in Corinth their favorite teacher and had rallied behind their favorite teacher. So some like Paul, some like Peter, some like Apollos, and they were all kind of rallying behind their guy, and it was causing division in the church. And so even in the very beginning, in the introduction, Paul is seeking to undermine that way of thinking with those small faction of people who are rejecting his teaching, his authority, and choosing to follow someone else. And so in the the very next verse, in verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God, right? Not the church of Paul, because I planted it. Not the church of Apollos, because he watered it. Not the church of Peter, because you like his teaching better, but to the church of God. Now, that word, we're going to do a little bit more Greek, if that's okay with you guys, because it's helpful to know what Paul is talking about here. That word church is this word ekklesia, you guys have heard that word before? Um, ecclesia, and it comes from two words smashed together. And the two words that are smashed together is this word ek, which means from or to call, or uh, sorry, from or out of, and this word kaleo, which means to call. And so like literally from the, the words that are smashed together to create this word, ecclesia means to call out of. But in most English translation, it's usually brought to mean uh, assembly or gathering, right? And so we have the root of the word is to call out of, but how it gets translated is assembly or gathering. And so at the very end, we have this really rich definition of the church is the gathering of called out ones. That's crucial because where are these Christians called out of? To the church 
of God that is in Corinth, to the gathering of called out ones that are in Corinth. Paul's going to go on to say how they need to live significantly different than those in Corinth, that they are to be holy, set apart, sanctified, that they are to live a different way of life. And so immediately in their identity, they are the gathering of called out ones, of set apart ones in a city that is known for anything other than Jesus. Paul's writing back to this church he helped plant. So he knows the the culture and the kind of city Corinth is. And there are really three main things that you and I ought to know about this city to to lay the foundation for what Paul's about to say. Corinth was the center for all of the trade in that particular region, meaning Corinth is a city dripping with money. There's money to be made everywhere because it is a common path for people who are trying to get from one end of an area to another. And so there's trade happening, there's commerce happening, there's lots of areas to make money. It is a city dripping with money. And it's also a center for religious pluralism and polytheism, which means the worshiping of many gods, right? This is not a secular city, not by any stretch a secular city. It is a passionately religious and highly spiritually charged city. People worshiping multiple gods, having sex with temple prostitutes, sacrificing this animal or this person who's crazy. And Corinth has a reputation for sexual immorality and promiscuity. There's a really uh, a writer in the time of Paul who basically coined a word, uh, and it's this word Corinthianazo, which just means Corinthian, and it was slang for someone who was really loose. So if you lived in Corinth, you were a Corinthian, that word Corinthian was slang for someone who was sexually very loose. And this was common in their culture. It was the center of all trade for religious pluralism and for sexual immorality and promiscuity. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, to the gathering of the called out ones in a pagan, multi-God worshiping city dripping with money, sex, and power, to those sanctified or set apart for something different in Christ. They are set apart for something different to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be the saints together with all those who are in every place. So this tells us this is not just a letter for the church in Corinth, but it's a letter for all Christians everywhere. In every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is kind of a good news first kind of guy as we get in. He starts high with their identity in Christ, the gathering of called out ones living in a pagan, money-loving, sex-loving city who are sanctified, who are being made holy, who are set apart for something different together with all believers everywhere, grace and peace to you. And he goes on in the very next paragraph thanking God for them 
right? After the, the cultural groundwork that we've laid for what is the city of Corinth, it seems puzzling that he would say, thank you for who you are because we know Corinth has tons of issues and the church at Corinth has tons of issues as well. But Paul starts by thanking them. Go to verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge. So he's thankful that grace has been shown to them, that they have been saved. He's thankful for their salvation. And he's thankful with how they've been gifted by Jesus. Paul's going to dig in that they're misusing those gifts in a whole litany of ways, but he's first thankful that Jesus has gifted this church, that in every way you were enriched in Jesus and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They lack nothing. This church is a mess, and they lack nothing. They're blowing it everywhere, and they lack nothing. They're following the sexual ethic of Corinth, the pagan worship, and they lack nothing. They think They have more value in the kingdom of God because they have words of knowledge or prophecy or tongues and making others feel like garbage for not having those same gifts and they lack nothing. They are divided as divided can be and they lack nothing. This is a profound statement for Paul to make to a church in chaos. That because Jesus in his grace has equipped them for life for their calling, for their mission, for ministry. They lack nothing. Jesus is faithful in sustaining them. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, just in the, in the fall, wintertime, we did a series out of Exodus chapter 34, just unpacking these character traits of, of God. And since then, it's been kind of amazing how I've noticed how much of Scripture is written on the basis of God's character, right? How, how often what we are called to do is coming out of who God already is. This is going to be a, a tough letter, but Paul finishes his intro by saying God is faithful, It is God who has called you into the fellowship of Jesus. It's God who has gifted you in every way, who's enriched you, who's given you spiritual gifts that you lack nothing. It is God who will sustain you. This is going to be a tough letter. Lots of things to be called out and corrected, but before he gets there, he reminds them that God's people possess the resources needed to grow, to to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus. And that that sustaining, those resources do not rest on you and your spiritual abilities and your talents and your church history and your church attendance and all that stuff. It rests on Jesus. Paul is saying that the kind of life that he's about to dig into, a life of repentance, of humility, of holy living, of sexual purity, of unity, of self-sacrificial love, that kind of life, that characterizes Jesus' people can only be realized by the supply and dependence on Jesus. You can't muster up enough willpower to be 
sanctified, to grow in Christ. This is supplied by Jesus, and he is faithful. God will supply the grace, the gifts, and the means to sustain his people until the end. God will remain faithful as his people are continually molded into the image of Jesus day by day. And that is Paul's introduction to this letter. That's how he sets the stage for where he's going to go. It's going to be tough. It's going to be uncomfortable. You will be called out. I will be called out. This church gets called out a whole lot. But Paul sets the stage by reminding them of their identity, the the gathering of the called out ones living in a city of sinfulness. They are sanctified. And Jesus Christ gives you gifts and sustains you so you lack nothing. In all your sinfulness, you lack nothing if you are in Christ. You have all the resources you need. Or as Paul says, I think Paul says it, you've been given everything for life and godliness. Like you as a Christian possess every tool at your disposal to grow, to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So week one, what are our, what are our takeaways from this? What are our takeaways from how Paul tees up this letter? I think first, a few things. First is salvation is holistic transformation, not a casual conversion. This is probably particularly hard for us in America. It's, in a way, I believe it's easier to be a Christian in other parts of the world, especially parts of the world that are facing persecution towards Christians. Because it's very easy to weed out the people who want to show up on a Sunday because it's the cool thing to do, or it's because what you're supposed to do, or it's because that's what my family does, or that's where my friend group is, or whatever. It's very easy to be a casual, cultural Christian in Southern California, particularly in 2019, right? So there are parts of the world where this is not so much an issue. It is very much an issue for us. And one of the things we learned from Paul's story is salvation was total. It changed everything about his life, his livelihood, his job, his friends group, probably his family, everything about Paul was changed because he encountered the risen Jesus. What does that mean for you? Have you encountered the risen Jesus? If not, you're invited to do that. Today, we'd love to pray with you. Have you encountered the risen Jesus and is your life different? Is there a marked change from the life you used to live to the life you now live because you've encountered the risen Jesus? Or like Stephen, you saw the glory of God. Second thing I think we learn from this intro is we are all called. No one is exempt from the mission of Jesus, not even you. We are all called out for mission and for life change you have a mission. You have meaning. You have purpose. As a Christian, you have role, responsibility, and mission to know God and join him in the restoration and renewal of all things, to bring his kingdom, his message, his gospel to Ventura. You have a mission. No one is exempt from that mission. Just because you're not married yet, or you don't have kids yet, or you haven't been to seminary yet, or you haven't been to church enough yet, you're not exempt from that mission. Everyone is called to life change and mission with Jesus. That's general. 
In particular, as we think about calling, there may be more specificity. And so it's worth noting that calling takes time. Most of the time, there is a long gap between calling and Corinth, to use Paul's story as a framework. There's a huge time gap between Acts chapter 8 and 9, where we see Paul come on the scene, and him starting the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Right, so in Acts chapter 9, this was right when he had that encounter with Jesus, that's right around AD like 33, 34. So, like right after Jesus ascended, right as the new church is getting started in Jerusalem, he has this encounter and he's given that calling. And in Acts chapter 11, when Barnabas picks him up, that's some 13, 14 years later. And there's another huge gap between when Barnabas picks him up and goes on mission and on missionary journeys with him to actually planting and landing in Corinth. There's something like two decades from when Paul plants the church at Corinth to when he's given that calling and that mission from Jesus. When Jesus says, you will be a light to the Gentiles, taking salvation to the ends of the earth, to in Acts chapter 18, when he dusts his cloak and his shoes off and he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. 20-some-odd years from calling to Corinth. We think often, and maybe it's just me, I don't know, maybe I'm alone in the room, but we think uh, vision equals immediate action. We think we get this grand idea. We maybe feel like we've heard from the Lord. Something's exposed to us in Scripture. Someone in our community group like calls something out in us, and we say, yes, like I see that for my life, and we think tomorrow is like, it's all going down. It's all happening. We think vision equals immediate action. Calling today means mission tomorrow. And maybe, maybe. But if we're looking at Paul's story, calling meant mission 20-some-odd years later. He went town to town. He was strengthening churches. He was preaching to the Jews. But until he was fulfilling that calling that Jesus gave him to go to the Gentiles, it's 20-some-odd years later. Personally, for me, I feel like I had that moment in life when I was 18 years old where I feel like the Lord was calling me into a life of ministry, of teaching the Bible, of leading people in the way of Jesus. 18 years old. We planted Anthem Ventura when I was 29, 28, something like that. It was 10 years later. I'm 31 now, and it's going okay. (laughs) I do not feel like I'm living my ministry dream right now. I do not feel like I'm living to the T, the calling that God has. I feel like I'm obeying as best as I know how. That's a long time from when I feel like the Lord was guiding my life towards something specific to seeing it come in fruition. That's a long time. And chances are it's probably a lot longer in store for me. Probably a lot longer in store for you as well. Calling takes time. So why does God speak vision and calling to us when there might be a really huge time gap between calling and Corinth? I believe it's to prepare us, to ready us. Because one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, says God's more concerned with who you are than what you do. In that waiting, there's growth and maturity and development and sanctification. There's stuff that needs to be grinded out of you and there's stuff that needs to be sowed into you. And in that journey between vision, calling, excitement for what's ahead and to actually seeing the fulfillment of that, there's a lot of work to be done on you. And it takes time because Jesus is changing you from the inside out. And that doesn't happen overnight. Don't give up. 
Have patience. If you feel like God has called you to something, don't give up. Have patience. Persevere. Calling takes time because God is transforming you from the inside out. And finally, I think the other thing we can learn is we all have a story. We honed in on Paul's story. We're about to hone in on the Corinthian story. This is the story of Paul and Sosthenes writing to a church plagued by division, set in a time of sexual indulgence, religious pluralism, and a deep-seated love of money. And this church, set in all of that, has the opportunity to proclaim and live the gospel of Jesus in their city. If you think you have it hard, think of the job ahead for the church in Corinth. Think of the job ahead for Paul as he's trying to instruct them in right living and light of the gospel. You have a story. God is using you. Once again, we're all called. You're not exempt. You have a story as well. God is intimately concerned with who you are. He's intimately concerned with how you live. He's intimately concerned with your story. He's using you. He's not done with you. You're not too far gone. So I guess my question to end is, are you willing to be used by God? Jesus ended a whole lot of his teachings with questions, and I think he's the best teacher in the world, so I'll do the same. Are you willing to be used by God? Despite of or throughout all of your flaws, all of your sinfulness, all of your past that's got you up until this point, it's a beautiful and ultra-cliche time of the year for a starting fresh moment. But seriously, up until this moment, are you willing to be used by God? If we look at Paul's story, I don't think any of you are so far gone that Saul might have been. If we look at the church in Corinth and the mess that we're going to have to sort through with them, I think we have it a little better than the church in Corinth in some ways. Are we willing to be used by God?